Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. From the masked magician on network television more than 20 years ago, on to today's so-called illusionist revealing secrets of magic on YouTube, it would be easy to think that magic has lost its spell, but you would be wrong. Case in point, my guest Joshua Jay, a former world champion in close-up magic, a Guinness record holder for card tricks, and a co-owner of Vanishing Ink Magic, one of the world's largest online magic brands. He has a passion for magic, and his new book, How Magicians Think, Misdirection, Deception, and Why Magic Matters, is available at vanishinginkmagic.com. For everything about Joshua J, go to joshuaj.com, and you can follow him on Facebook and Instagram at Joshua J Magician. And Joshua, welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for having me here. It's going to be fun. It's going to be a lot of fun. And I have to start out right off the gate. Why are magicians' minds different than other people's minds? Wow. The tricky question right (laughs) off the bat. Well, it's not that magicians' minds are so much different. It's that our experience makes us behave in ways that what we call lay people, which is you people, muggles, don't. (laughs) And... It's interesting. You know, I often liken magic to a game of chess. Magicians are trying to stay one or two or 10 moves ahead of their audience. And I don't just mean moves by sleight of hand. I mean, thought processes. We're trying to stay ahead of where you're thinking so that you don't realize things until it's too late, so that you don't understand where a plot is going until we've already gone there. And so, you know, when people say to you, how do you think like a magician? Well, Thinking like a magician is about thinking empathically. It's about thinking like your audience, which is a skill, frankly, you don't have to want to do magic to be good at or want to use in your life. If you're an advertiser, if you're a theater performer, if you're a writer, you have to find ways to get into the minds of your audience members. And magic is a great touchstone to do that. Does the audience get into the magician's mind ever, or is it always the magician getting into the audience's mind? That's an interesting question. I never really thought of it like that. I mean, when I'm on stage and I have people in the audience watching me, it's sort of hard for them to get in my head unless they're being disruptive or something like that. Um, But the very best magic shows feel like conversations. They feel like two people interacting with each other. They don't feel like I'm performing at you. That's my that's the thing I want to avoid most is, is somebody, even if they say I did a good show, if it feels like I'm reading a script and going through the motions, it's, I haven't done my job. It has to feel organic and in the moment. So it should feel like you have impact in the show. You said in an interview that you were born to write this book. And yes. you may be writing other books down the road, but this is the book you were born to write. And the question, of course, is why? What was in it? the subject matter. And again, the title is How Magicians Think, Misdirection, Deception, and Why Magic Matters. So clearly magic matters to you on a lot of levels. And you've decided to spend the time to write the book. It's published by Workman Publishing. Your book is not about how to perform a magic trick, how to do the invisible deck by Don Allen, how to do the French drop. It's really a little bit more cosmic than that, isn't it? Completely. I love that. More cosmic. That's a nice way of putting it. Yeah, I mean, to go back to your original question first, I do believe I was born to write this book in the sense that my journey as a seven-year-old kid who was amazed by my parent doing, my dad did a trick for me and didn't tell me how it was done and figuring out that trick and then progressing on to 
creating my own tricks and performing around the world and, and creating other magic tricks and doing all of these things, it's all led me right back here to this book. This book is my love letter to magic. And you don't have to want to do magic to like this book. You don't even have to be a particular magic fan. It's a book about pushing boundaries. It's a book about the creative process. It's a book about taking anything and pushing it past what people thought was possible. To answer the second part of your question, you know, I've been writing this book in my head for, for 10 years. I couldn't sell it at first, but we eventually found the way to sell it. And, and here we are. But this book really, it's meaningful to me because the best part of magic is the part that most people never get to see. You know, there are so many moments in my show where, you know, people react in a nice way and they're clapping or gasping. And I'm thinking to myself, if you thought that was cool, what do you see what it looks like from my side? You wouldn't believe it. You know, but you can't do that, of course. You can't rob people of that experience. All right. But at the same time, I want to share those things. So this book is a very, it's a very difficult book to write in a way. It was a very fun dance because I skirt around the secrets because I don't want to spoil it for anybody. But I do peel back the curtain and share the real secrets of magic with, with people. And you also shadowed three outstanding magicians as part of the book that you wrote about. And one of them, of course, that everybody knows is Teller from Penn and Teller. Yes. And David Copperfield and David Blaine. And so you clearly had access. Two were, I believe, in person and one was by phone primarily, but you were able to get enough information from all three to make this significant contribution to your tome. Yeah. Yeah. So so I just did an event here in Las Vegas with Teller on stage with me at the writer's block. And that was really gratifying for one of my heroes to share a stage with, with me and interview me was, you know, beyond description, sort of. I mean, I'm so lucky that I live in a small enough art form that I can have access to my heroes. If I was some, you know, if I was interested in acoustic guitar ballads, I'm not going to be able to get, you know, Eric Clapton to come out and and interview me. But this was it was incredible. I've known David Blaine and David Copperfield for some years, and they very graciously gave me access to them. I came here uh, to Vegas to interview David Copperfield, and we did the interview in his private jet of all places. Nice. Um, and we sat for hours. And, you know, he's just somebody who wants to get it right. He is such a perfectionist in every aspect of his professional life that I sort of said, I will take up 30 minutes of your time. That is all I need. And he said, no, 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 we're going to sit until it's done. And there were several times because it was after his second show. So it's like one, two in the morning. And um, and I would say like, OK, well, we're going to go now. And, and no, 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 there's more. We have to cover more things. And he just was so generous with his time. And he's such an incredible talent. And then David Blaine, I mean, he's the strangest of the bunch for sure, <laughs> an enigmatic guy, but but no less talented, every bit of an artist. And, you know, he was a difficult interview. He kind of challenges you as a journalist to, to challenge him. And in the end, I, I found the angle, and I'm very proud of those three chapters in the book. As anybody who has written a book knows, there's so many different elements to the process. One is interviewing subjects either taking notes or recording them or doing both, then the process of writing, then the process of rewriting, then the process yeah. of editing, et cetera, et cetera. Now, clearly, you have other things going on at the same time that you're writing this book, which is why it took you so long to do it. But does it feel like you've given birth now and then now it's done and you can move on with your life because you've put 
in essence, what you said, you were born to write this book, so you put your soul into it. Your next book may not be for another five years, but it won't be as compelling for you to get it done as, as eventually yes. you do. You hit the nail on the head. You know, when I was at this event here in Las Vegas, somebody asked Teller a great question, and his answer was superb. They said, how, you know, I think they were asking something like, how do you keep your, your show fresh when you've done a trick thousands of times? And he sort of said, you know, you dream of getting it that comfortable. I mean, you work on a trick so long where it might look okay, it might look great, but you behind the scenes are sweating it out and, and tweaking it and, and tinkering with the timing and stuff. But when you finally get something ironed out to a point where it's done or, or more or less fully formed, that's when a lot of magicians, and I'm guilty of this, we lose interest. It's like, okay, on to the next. I want a, I want a new project. I want a new thing. But he sort of said, you know, that's, that's what you dream about is like coasting with that trick and just living in the moment of this well-oiled machine now. And I, I feel that way about this book. I feel that, you know, it is done. I can't take it back. It's out. It's gotten a wonderful reception, which I'm grateful for. I, I had to put this book presentation together and I was a little nervous, but now a third of the way into this 45-day book tour, 45-city book tour, I've had every curveball thrown at me. So now I'm just hanging on for the ride. And it's just awesome. Were you surprised at the reaction to the book when you started this tour? Were you surprised at the reaction from A, the general public and B, magicians? Um, you know, I was hopeful. Uh, you know, that's a tough question to answer without sounding like a jerk. I mean, give an honest answer. You'll yeah, be fine. I, I was scared. I was, you know, concerned that somebody wouldn't get what I tried to do. But to be honest with you, by the time it was ready to go to press, enough colleagues had read it and said the sort of dream thing that you look for, the sort of, Josh, I've read all your writing, but this is special. This is different. Like, I'm blown away. I couldn't stop. I stayed up all night. And so when you get that sort of feedback, you're, you're given a little confidence that, that maybe you're going to be okay in this. It doesn't mean that I'm not nervous and that I don't think about, well, they said nice things, but do they really mean it? And you know, they're, they're not saying a whole lot. Are they really liking it? But at the end of the day, I, I think it's I think it's a strong effort. I'm proud of the book. There are things I wish I could have expanded on, but you have limits. You can't write a thousand well, chapters. Well, you still have book. a lot of material left in the book that you could actually we do cut stuff out with. a full third of the book, I would right. say, up on the editing room floor. And I, I think some of the better stuff got cut just because it was too, as it was told to me by the publisher, it was good, but it was inside baseball. And I think that's probably was really smart to cut it. But it doesn't mean that that material won't rear its head some other way, some other time, some other place. So we'll see. Okay. It could also be posted online and then have a subscription service to the read the inside like, stuff. Like Substack. Kind yeah, of thing, exactly right. right. Substack right. very yeah. much. The disappearing Substack. You could create magic within the Substack. Right. That might work too. One of the things you talked about too is that this is a serious book on magic for the public. And the idea is to deepen people's appreciation of magic. and I think that was always in your mind. You originally, from what I understand, you were born to write the book, but you, you had an inspiration by, I believe, one book on music that helped you focus your approach. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. I, um, I was influenced by the book How Music Works by David Byrne. And, you know, I'm not a musician. I'm not an aspiring musician. I don't want to pursue anything within music, but I like music. And I like listening to how anybody who's great at what they do talks about their craft, because I'm going to learn something about my craft. And so when, when I got that book, I was like, see this, 
this is the book I want to write for magic. And when I went back to my publisher and sort of said, I know it was hard to describe before, but this is what I'm talking about. That's when people started to go, okay, I get it. It's like kind of the, the secret meat grinder of magic, what's going on behind the scenes and so on. And um, so, so that's how it happened. And that's the book. But, you know, you talk about my goal is to deepen people's appreciation for magic. You know, that sounds very lofty and in the clouds, but let me give you the flip side that's sort of negative. If you wanted to go get How Music Works by David Byrne, you would find it in a good bookstore in the performing arts section. If it was not uh, as a detailed of a bookstore, you would find it in the music section. It's got its own section. If you wanted to get a book on modern dance, performing arts, if you wanted to get a book on stand-up comedy, performing arts, you know where you find my book and all the books on magic? Puzzles and games. <laughs> puzzles and games and that's that's a sad commentary on where my craft sits with the public that that this is a book about wonderful marvelous thinkers in the history of magic that this is a book on touching people with storytelling through magic to dedicating your life to something and it will be nestled between crossword puzzles and maze books this may be a new campaign for you joshua is getting bookstores, those that remain, to recognize that magic has its own category. Looking at authors of magic and with your background, who had the most influence on you growing up and reading about magic? Could be Walter Gibson, if you want to go way back to one of the people who wrote about magic. John Scarney was another one. Martin Gardner, I have one of his books. Who Who were some of the people that influenced you growing up that wrote about magic. Yeah, well, there are two great magic authors that wrote, if you take them together, some of the greatest books of our century, and that's Stephen Minch and Richard Kaufman. And they wrote wonderful books. I mean, the books that influenced me the most as a kid in 1996, this books came out called The Books of Wonder by, uh, by Tommy Wonder and Stephen Minch, and also the big, large compendiums of Paul Harris's magic. He was a famous magician in the 70s and 80s. Those books influenced me a lot, but, you know, I have a huge magic library, thousands of books, and I really spend a ton of my free time reading them. I mean, they used to say in my craft that there are more books written about magic than any other performing art. And I looked into this because it's one of those things you hear from the elders. It turns out it's not true. It's not true, but it's close. In other words, there are more books written on music than magic, but music is everywhere. There's a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. There are music stations. There's Spotify. There's Apple Music concerts it's a multi-billion dollar industry magic is nothing magic is tiny and yet there are almost as many books written on magic as there are on music now think about that that we are such a literate little craft and i'm very proud of our our literary tradition why do you think it is that this craft that has been around so long and has created such wonder and entertainment for people is relegated to that no section in the bookstore metaphorically or figuratively. What, what is the reasoning behind that? Have you been able to figure that out through your research? I mean, I think that that's a, that's a big, complicated question with probably many factors in the answer. I mean, I think that magic tends to only embrace one performer at a time. You know, it goes from Houdini to, to on and on to... Doug Henning and then David Copperfield and then David Blaine, but magic doesn't really embrace more than one person in the public's eye at a time. 
Whereas if I said list musicians, we could be here all night long just listing by genre many, many, many people without anybody going, well, but I like the Beatles more than the Stones. Well, you can like both, you know? I mean, there's no rules here. But with Magic, it tends to be just a few people at the very top. I think the other thing is that there just aren't that many magicians. You know, amateur music clubs, amateur poetry clubs are huge everywhere. Everybody considers themselves an amateur in, in most of the performing arts. But there aren't a lot of magicians. And I think that that makes magic rare, which is both good and bad. But it's just one of those things. You know, the first thing I say in all my shows is how many people are seeing a live magic show for the first time? Three quarters of the hands go up when I, I say that. And mm. that's, that, that's just staggering to me. Because if I said how many people are seeing live music for the first time, practically everybody's seen music before. Have you thought about performing on a full-time basis or maybe not a full-time basis? How about a regular basis in Las Vegas? Because Las Vegas has so many great magicians. It seems to be now, with apologies to Colton, the magic capital of the world, Las Vegas. So have you thought about that? Maybe doing a residency where maybe it's a week here, a week there, but you're coming back every month or every three months? I have thought about that and I would love that. I mean, I think I love coming here. I was just talking on the phone to my girlfriend while I was getting lunch today. Uh, Vegas has energy. Vegas has tremendous energy here. And yes, it's manufactured. And yes, it's all stucco and fake. And it's a little crass and commercial. And there's not deep culture here. And, And I'm not dismissing those things. But Vegas has real energy. People come here for fun. And as much as people poo poo the the change in Vegas, that it's not an adult place anymore. It's all family and corporate. Yeah, but Vegas has become less about gambling, which I have zero interest in, and more about entertainment and treating the tourist well. And I think that that's a good thing. I mean, I think Vegas is tremendously exciting right now, much more so than it was 20 years ago with the entertainment options. I'd love to do a show here. From what I gather, unless you're truly one of the headliners, David Copperfield, Chris Angel, Penn and Teller, unless you're at that level where your name is selling tickets, it's a real grind for even the even the big shows here. And I, I know all of these people, and they all tell me it is a constant grind to fill those seats. And that, you know, the business part of show business holds like no appeal for me. I do it. I have to know about it. I have to get good at it. But I don't, I don't take pleasure. I know some magicians who like love press. They just love doing press and talking. I'd rather be doing magic. I do the press because it's, it's part of the job. Sure. How about, okay, here's a new concept, a new show, Penn and Jay. What do you think? I love it. Well, but then what, what about Teller? Can we just be Penn, Teller, and John? <laughs> sure. Why not? <laughs> the first magical trio in Las Vegas. Actually, did you know that they started as a trio? They started as a trio called the Asparagus Valley Society. <laughs> they did and not. They, they, um, they lost one of the guys and became Penn and Teller. How important. <laughs> that's, I, that's an interesting. I didn't realize that. That's great. Yeah. Have you heard from any of in addition to the people that you shadowed, have you heard from any magicians that you value as not necessarily icons, but you look up to for their craft and their talent? Have you heard from them in terms of reaction to your book? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, very kindly, we got blurbs from all of my heroes, David Copperfield, David Blaine, Penn and Teller, Neil Patrick Harris. And then, you know, really nice comments. One today from Jamie Ian Swiss, a great magic writer and theorist that I respect so much. 
you know, the love online is very gratifying. I, I know some of it's just necessary and part of the job, but I appreciate it nonetheless. And, and I'm grateful for all of it. You're relatively young. Do you see magic continuing through to the next generation and the generation after that? Do you hear from kids, teenagers, young adults about the impact of magic on their lives? hundred percent. I, I mean, I dedicate a lot of my time in my life to training the next generation of magic. Um, when we're done with this interview this evening, I am doing a lecture here in Las Vegas for the magicians and there'll be young people there and I'll be helping them and training them. And no, it's a huge part of what I do. And, and I, magic's in great hands. I, I say at the end of the book that one of my hopes is that the next great magician will be a female and somebody from outside the United States. I think it's time. I think it's totally possible. And, uh, and I, think, I think it could happen. What was the impact on your family when you decided to go down this path of magic and all, and all elements of magic? Did you get support from your family? Oh, yeah. I had the most supportive mother, most supportive father. I had great support from my family. And it meant a lot that they weren't sitting there like most parents with a sounding board in the back, like get a regular job, get a corporate job, be a lawyer, be a dentist. They were like, find something you love and then find a way to do it for a living. Your father figured since he showed you the first trick you ever saw that he must support you as a magician. Would yes, that be fair? He <laughs> yes, he very much did. And he was a huge supporter. We did it together, you know, for, no, for many. Have they seen you perform professionally? Yeah, my father passed away in 2005. So unfortunately, he didn't get to see my career become what it was, but he got to see me perform and, and that was meaningful. And my mom is like, you know, the sweetest woman in the world and my biggest fan. And she drives really long distances. Her and my stepdad drive so long and so far to see me, you know, appear on a show for 20 minutes or do a book signing or something. And then they see a ton of my stuff. So it's, uh, it's all good. That is supportive. Do you th see when you perform in your typical audience when you are performing, is it a mix of generations or is it primarily a certain age range? Um, no, it's adults. I, I mean, I really discourage kids from coming because, you know, everybody will say, oh, you're a magician. I'll bring my kids. It's like, just bring yourself. I do, I do adult magic primarily, but, you know, it's all audiences and I, I love that. I talked in the beginning about the masked magician and about all these so-called illusionists revealing how magic tricks are performed online. Do you find that takes away a little bit from it? I don't think it does because clearly magic is still popular, but do you see that there is a, not a cynicism, but a knowledge that takes away from your performance or any magician's performance? No, I think magicians are a great audience. I know some magicians hate magic audiences and they're scared by it and they think that it takes a different technique, but I really feel like um, magicians are warm audiences. And we have magicians coming every night to these book events, and it's just great. Well, what about the, the general public, though, where they have knowledge of magic because they watch YouTube and they know about the masked magician? Does that in some way impact your performance or other magicians' performances? Because they seem to know how the illusion is done. No, not unless they're exposing it on YouTube. But I think it's... Um, I think it's it's entirely for the better. And I think that the global community of magicians is pushing magic forward in, in really meaningful ways. Before I let you go, last question. The main focus of your book is to accomplish what? To deepen people's appreciation for magic. As we've talked about in this interview, you know, I think that magic is not appreciated the way that it could be and should be. And I hope that this book opens people's minds and hearts to the power and potential of magic.
That's a great way to end it. My guest has been Joshua Jay, a former world champion in close-up magic, a Guinness record holder for card tricks, and co-owner of Vanishing Ink Magic, one of the world's largest online magic brands. His new book, How Magicians Think, Misdirection, Deception, and Why Magic Matters is available at vanishinginkmagic.com. And for everything about Joshua J, go to joshuaj.com and you can follow him on Facebook and Instagram at Joshua J Magician. Joshua, thanks for being on the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me. And listen, for your listeners who love podcasts, I have one other thing to share, and that is my own podcast. You search How Magicians Think. It's the title of the book, but it's not the audiobook. It's very different. And I have five episodes out and seven more coming, and they are fascinating takes. It's sort of modeled on This American Life and documentaries. It's not just interviews. It's monologues and stories, and it's about whether there's real magic in the world and Yuri Geller and the Masked Magician and all sorts of fun stuff. So that's all coming up. I'll subscribe to it, too. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much. And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel.